Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Len Goodman, who's Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. He has published over two dozen books in Jewish, Islamic, and general philosophy, including books on truth and justice, political philosophy, biophilosophy, and comparative philosophy. Welcome, Len. It's a pleasure to be here with you, Gil. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So I want to start with one of your older papers uh, entitled Science and God. Uh, you say religion, like sciences, uh, seeks to thematize reality, uh, but they differ in what they abstract from. Religions focus on values, often ultimates, you say, and the sciences see causes, typically proximate causes. Uh, so territorial disputes then are misguided, and uh, scientism uh, in seeking to displace religion is misguided, you say. So uh, uh, what do you mean by that? Um, science's effort to, to displace religion, how is it misguided? Well, uh, I, I think it would be valuable to distinguish uh, scientists who are trying to understand the world from scientific people who are trying to uh, claim territory in that uh, in that realm and and feel uncomfortable for whatever personal or historical or biographical reasons they feel uncomfortable with religion uh, maybe they had a conflict uh, with their family or something and they uh, and they want to uh, preclude uh, religious discussions and they uh, they think of a, a religion as a as a competitor as a form of uh, ignorance and and uh, a response to uh, to fear uh, that's generated by that ignorance uh, if we think about values i think there are there are different kinds of values uh, certainly there's a value in understanding but there are different kinds of understanding uh, the scientist typically uh, wants to understand causes in a uh, uh, often in a mechanical sort of way, but if you if you look at biology, for example, 
uh, you're going to have to look at, uh, at, at values and causes of a different sort. You're going to have to look at uh, causes uh, uh, which are uh, uh, purposes. Uh, think, about, think about physiology or medicine or, or uh, evolutionary biology, where you have to understand what function an organ or an organ system or a behavior or a physiological process might, might play. Uh, in order to keep uh, an animal alive, in order to keep a lineage of animals uh, going, uh, we start looking at uh, at causes in a broader sense than than merely mechanical. Uh, I think what religion is interested in is the question about the value that's being served, whether by mechanical causes or by teleological causes uh, uh, in, in what purposes are these and why are there purposes at all and why, uh, why uh, and how can purposes uh, be served. Uh, religion, religion is looking for ultimates. Uh, sometimes scientists are looking for what's ultimately small or what's ultimately simple. And one of the things you find when you do that is that the simple turns out to be not so simple. The small turns out to be very complex. Uh, basic principles turn out to require higher principles. And uh, uh, science, science, has, uh, uh, science verges into religion and religion verges into science, but that leads to territorial disputes. Oh, uh, you're, you're, you're preempting my, my territory and uh, you, you have no business talking about values when I really want to talk about uh, how things came about rather than why they came about. Yes. yes. No, no. I sometimes think that uh, in, the, in the realm of science, uh, you know, it behaves a little bit like religion, contemporary science. Um, as you know, there is a lot of confirmation biases. Uh, the experiments uh, tend to have uh, more of, you know, experiments designed to confirm something that we already know. Yes. And the confirmation biases, like if you're not in the club and not, mm. uh, not pursuing things that are well established, uh, you tend to be, you know, so, sort of pushed away from that. So, yes. Uh, and religion has very similar um, similar characteristics. My problem, I, I'm neither a scientist nor a religious person, so I don't bring a lot of content uh, to this discussion, Len. But uh, my problem with religion is that it appears that politicians and crooks, generally speaking, uh, use religion to control people. So it has become yes. of a tool. Uh, they do. They do. And and science is science is used the same way. It's it's kind of uh, one of the problems about uh, human nature. Um, we we can look back on uh, the Salem witch trials or the Inquisition and uh, and see how terrible it is. And uh, oftentimes people have difficulty seeing that their own uh, behavior might uh, mimic some of those exclusionary and oppressive tendencies. Uh, well, it's not oppressive on my part. Uh, we, we on our side are the good people. Uh, we, we, we believe in truth and love and simplicity and inclusion and all those good things. Uh, so it becomes very difficult for people, whether they're scientists or religious people, or whether they're scientific 
fanaticism, fanaticism in general is a uh, is a human ailment, uh, and and it's been it's been used in all kinds of ways. Yeah. Uh, I can I can tell you uh, you know about people being burned at the stake and. Uh, the people who celebrate the martyrs who were burned at the stake, uh, and, and you have the uh, 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 Martyrs Memorial in Oxford, where I was in graduate school, uh, we remember uh, Latimer and others who were burned at that very spot, not too many hundred years ago. Uh, but the people who who, who did that burning were, were not above uh, uh, having it done to them. Uh, uh, that's a... Uh, I, th I think we I think we need to um, separate the vices of religion or of scientism from the virtues of it. Yeah. Uh, uh, religious people, like scientists, want to know the truth, but they're looking for, oftentimes, a different kinds of truth, and uh, and they become intolerant or oppressive when they think somebody is precluding the discussion that they want to have. Uh, and, and that oppression can become uh, very nasty. Uh, it, it goes on now, uh, and it, it has gone on throughout history. But I think, it's, I think it's a human weakness rather than a characteristic of uh, science as it should be, or religion as it can be and should be. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I don't know a lot about this, Len, but I would imagine in the medieval times, uh, to be an atheist uh, was a very risky venture, um, I would think, right? You, you are basically going against the grain, so to speak. Uh, and I wondered in the, in the current time, um, do we know we have approximately 8.3 billion people in the world? Do we know um, what sort of the religious versus non-religious break is in that, pop in that entire population? I well, I think you've got to distinguish uh, uh, sincere and informed religion from uh, uh, from ignorant and uh, me tooism and and uh, just going along with the crowd. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, once you once you start doing that analysis, uh, your your census uh, of populations is going to get very tricky. Mm. Uh, I, I think uh, I think you're right in in suggesting that uh, most people in the world have some kind of religion. Mm. But, uh, but even within the various confessions, you know, um, uh, I'll give you an example of that. Uh, I taught for many years before coming to Vanderbilt. I taught at the University of Hawaii. Yeah. And, uh, and I had a colleague who was a, a foremost scholar of Buddhism. And uh, in his view, uh, looking at the texts of early Buddhism, uh, he found that that uh, the Buddha himself and the early texts uh, that represent that tradition were um, uh, were, were atheistic. Uh, there was a religion, all right, but it wasn't a God-centered religion, and he made a big point of that. Uh, however, uh, when I traveled uh, to uh, to Taiwan and gave some lectures there. I uh, uh, I visited a, uh, well, everybody said you had to go to a night market. And I went to a night market and it was, it was vulgar and lots of neon and lots of shops and so forth. But in the middle of the night market, there was a temple 
which was uh, something over 200 years old, beautiful carved stone and so forth. Yeah. And in that temple was an altar. And in front of that altar were hundreds and hundreds of little icons all lined up and jaw sticks were being burnt for them. And uh, paper money, symbolic uh, artificial paper money was being beautifully folded and left in front of them as symbolic offerings. And there were people there whose piety and sincerity I could not possibly doubt. But the idea that my colleague had that Buddhism was essentially atheistic was refuted there. Uh, there, were, there were dozens, if not hundreds, of those little gods uh, being being worshipped. Uh, uh, so popular religion is one thing, and philosophical religion is is another. And uh, uh, and and similarly, I think one has to one has to do that analysis of distinguishing, uh, shall we say, crowd behavior, where people want to exclude others that they somehow regard as uh, critically different from themselves from. Uh, uh, from from open, loving, inquiring sorts of of uh, understanding, uh, one doesn't have to uh, believe that somebody is an idiot or a wretch in order to understand that that person might have come to different beliefs and different practices and have been brought by different traditions and upbringing to to a different way of life and a different way of thinking. Uh, and uh, in, my, in my opinion, I, I do a lot of comparative philosophy. In my opinion, uh, we can learn from each other without having to become relativists and without having to uh, just simply adopt each other's views. We can, we can gain from each other. Each other. And the, uh, the wise people of every generation uh, have done that. Uh, they have They've been open. They have learned from traditions which are alien to their own, uh, and yet and yet have um, truths in them and 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 virtues in their practices that are worth uh, uh, acquiring. Yeah. So, so I want to could could we think about religion sort of a framework going back to the the Buddhist philosophy. Uh, but if you think about that as a framework, uh, just like philosophy, uh, then, um, you know, it becomes a bit abstract, right? So uh, can, we, can we have religion without gods in, in the popular sense? Is gods a- there, are, there are religions. There are religions without God. But one of the funny things about that, uh, human people uh, seem to go looking for gods. So... <laughs> So, you know, um, in the former Soviet Union, yeah. uh, it was, uh, that was an area where people were being persecuted for being religious. And if you were serious, relig- seriously religious in, uh, in the Soviet Union, uh, whether, whether it was as a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim, uh, you, could be, you could be sure that you were being spied upon Many of the Russian Orthodox, which was the recognized official religion, uh, well, the official religion in, in the Soviet Union was atheism. But but the uh, many many of those who 
still attended and participated in uh, the Russian Orthodox Church had to realize and deal with the fact that many of the officials there were there to spy on them and to be apparatchiks of the of the government. But one of the things that you found in in that situation was that people who were good party members and uh, 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 hewed to the line of being, uh, just as they were supposed to be, very atheistic, um, they became subject to all kinds of very rapidly spreading and, and uh, widely accepted superstitions. Yeah. Uh, you can see it most visibly if you visit a cemetery with graves from that period. They made quite a cult of the dead. And there were all kinds of interests in um, uh, necromancy and, and uh, all kinds of superstitions, ESP, uh, some, of them, some of them newly invented superstitions. They were trying to fill up a kind of spiritual gap by their own uh, imaginative practices or uh, just borrowing from traditions that they might have heard of or gotten a little confused about. Uh, so I think in spirituality as in nature, uh, you know how they used to say nature abhors a vacuum. I think that's true of the realm of spirit as well. Uh, people, people try to fill in um, what they feel the lack of. And uh, I think one of the values of a religious tradition is to try to provide some kind of intellectual and moral discipline uh, uh, to, to, to marshal and make sense of and, and, and guide those, those human appetites for, uh, for something that goes on, what you can feel or touch or smell or eat. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, you know, going back to the paper, you know, this contrast between science and religion Yes. Uh, in science, um, again, I don't have the statistics, but we generally find a high proportion of agnostics and, and atheists. Um, and, and so uh, supposing that is that is true. You mean among scientists? Uh, among scientists, yeah. Yes. So supposing that is true, then uh, are you really drawing an equivalence between science and religion? Uh, in other words, are, are you saying religion is like science and vice versa? I think they are like each other in the sense that both religion and science are human inquiries and human enterprises. Uh, as far as the prominence of uh, atheism and agnosticism among scientists, uh, the first thing I'd say is it's not as common as you might suppose. Uh, I was just talking to a physicist from another university the other day uh, who's very involved with Catholic scientists, and there's a very high proportion of uh, scientists who are serious Catholics or who are serious Jews. There are others who are inquirers and are trying to find out uh, what it's all about. I, I think one of the reasons, now I, I can think of two reasons right off the top of the head, top of my head, uh, why, why that atheism and agnosticism would be relatively common among scientists. One is fashion. People are very fashion conscious you said at the beginning, uh, we don't want to be left out. We don't want to be thought to be different. Uh, we, we conform our thinking to what we think will help us fit in. It's not something that just, just girls in junior high school, girls in, in junior high school grades would do. Uh, we'll do it to some extent. Yeah. 
That's one thing is fashion. The other thing is that for some scientists, and I'm thinking of the really uh, large minds among them, the ones who are really widely inquiring, uh, they, uh, the scientific enterprise plays a similar role in their lives to the kind of consuming role that religion plays for other people who are not scientists. So some people are literary people and poets, and some people are scientists, and they're filling, they're filling a need. Uh, they don't always want to describe it as a spiritual need, but I think to some extent it is, and uh, uh, they, they may find religion unwelcome because it's telling them how to fill that need, and they think they already know a way to fill it, and they don't want to be told, and they don't see uh, some of them don't see a complementarity. Uh, complementarity is very important, for example. Yeah. I, I named two examples. Uh, one a very obvious one is Einstein. Uh, Einstein uh, did not have a, a strong religious background, but he did have strong religious inclinations. And he had the idea that that in, in studying nature in the, in the broadest and, and finest possible way, uh, he was getting close to the ultimate structure of things. And he was not adverse to saying that, that he was uh, in some way seeing the mind of God. Uh, the other scientist I would think of, who's a, uh, a little less famous, but a very important one, think of Theodosius Dobzhansky, who was the, the, the creative mind who, who really, really founded neo-Darwinism. Yeah. Uh, that is to say, back in the 20s and 30s, uh, evolution and genetics were at each other's throats. There was competition. Uh, the geneticists didn't like the fact that evolution was so teleological, and the uh, evolutionists didn't like the fact that uh, Mendelian genetics uh, seemed so deterministic and, and, and tended to look at things in terms of of, of uh, mechanical causation. Yeah. Uh, what happened, what, what Dobzhansky did was he was able to create a synthesis, which all students in biology today take for granted, between genetics and evolution and explain how genetics provides the, the matter and the tools by which evolution takes place. <laughs> Nobody who's a student of biology today would deny the importance of that, that synthesis. I think that Dobzhansky was a, th a synthetic thinker. And I think that his being a synthetic thinker was part of his religious background. He was, he was uh, actually Russian Orthodox, uh, not, not, in the, not in the sense that they were spying on each other in the Soviet Union. He wasn't in the Soviet Union. Very spiritual kind of man. And I think his spirituality, I don't think it was the source of his interest in evolution and genetics. He was a scientist. But I think that the idea that things that seem to be enterprises that seem to be at odds with one another could be brought together in a higher synthesis inspired him to create that synthesis scientifically and to see that it was parochial and mean-spirited to be for genetics and against evolution or for evolution and against genetics. And uh, that that creative moment in science 
similar to the synthesis that Einstein was looking for between when he was looking for a unified field theory, uh, that that desire to see uh, the wisdom in all things and to recognize that wisdom might take different forms. That in itself, I think, is is, is an area where where a scientist who is broad spirited enough can uh, can be inspired by religion. Yeah. Uh, although, Although many of them do get very territorial, as I said. Yeah, yeah. So, 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 like you say, that is that is rare. Uh, so, so you, you talked about fashion, sort of driving science, uh, the the need to conform as sort of. A- well, I, I, I said, I said, driving scientism. Uh, whether fashion drives science, I, 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 I take exception to that a little bit. That's a fashionable view, in fact. That, that, <laughs> Usually gets fathered upon uh, Thomas Kuhn, uh, and I think Kuhn's a little more sophisticated than that. But uh, but but anyway, I, I didn't want to stop you. Please go ahead. No, no, I, I was just going to say uh, you could make the same argument for religion too, right? Uh, yes, fashion drives religion as well. Oh, definitely. And that's yeah, that's that's the uh, that's the, the the human flaw that we're you know we're you know what Aristotle said: man is a social animal. <laughs> and being social animals doesn't mean just that we need each other to to harvest the grain that makes our bread. That's part of it. Being social animals means we care about what each other think. Uh, and people who pretend not to uh, are often the ones who care the most. Yeah. So, so if I understand you correctly, Len, one of the arguments you're making is that these things could be complementary uh, if you yes. really look at it in a, in the broadest sense. Uh, and not have preconceived notions about it, right? Uh, yes. And so, you know, you mentioned in the paper, for example, Big Bang cosmology yes. and, and Darwinism. Um, so, you know, Big Bang cosmology, as you know, we, we don't really know what happened before time started. Hard, hard to know. Hard yeah. to know. It was a long time ago and uh, things were very different. We know that. Yeah, yeah. And so- we think we know that. <laughs> I guess our our conceptions from the scientific side uh, of religion and and vice versa. I think there is there is some miss missed opportunities. Is that is that how you think it? How you? Well, here's here's what I would say. Let me let me say one word about Big Bang cosmology first yeah. of all, because uh, you know I study a lot of medieval thinkers. Yeah. Muslim and Jewish and Christian medieval thinkers, and I teach about that and I write about that. These guys would have given their eye teeth if they could prove, if they had any of the evidence that we have about the Big Bang. Yeah. We know because of the Doppler effect that the uh, universe is expanding. Right. And if we project back, we can find a moment of an initial singularity, which is powerful evidence for the idea that the universe began. There are other possible interpretations, but the most likely one is that the universe had a beginning. Yeah. Uh, if any of those guys that I study who lived back in the 8th, 9th, 10th, 12th century, if any of them had known anything about that evidence, they thought it was not, they, th- they thought that there was no possibility of having such evidence of something that happened so long ago before there was anybody to watch. Right. Uh, we do have that evidence now because of the, uh, because of the redshift. And the uh, that would have been very, very exciting to them. Uh, that that would have 
that would have shown no oh, it's okay well it could have it, it, it could have been a big bang uh, and and then a, there was a big uh, a big crunch before that and a big bang before that but it's it's kind of unlikely uh the big bang is such a strong singularity that uh that it gives us reason to be, to believe that it all began and then your theist would come along and say it didn't all just begin uh uh uh, for, for no cause whatever. If you're a scientist, you ought to believe in explanations. And there are different kinds of explanations. We have to ask ourselves how it happened. We also have to ask ourselves why it happened. And one of the, one of the big lines that you can draw between science and religion is that religion is more interested in the, in the why than in the, than in the how. And yeah. science is more interested in the how. Yeah. But if you yeah. think... But if you think the uh, if you think the the question if you think the 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 lines have to be drawn as battle lines between science and religion, think about science and art. Yeah. Think about science and art. They're not usually at each other's throats. There's religious art and there's also anti-religious art. But a lot of art can just be appreciated as art. It doesn't preclude analysis and it doesn't preclude feeling it's part of it let me say a word about evolution since you yeah. since you raised that yeah. uh, in in my book creation and evolution uh i i run an argument to the effect that uh that evolution uh is another way of to use a crude metaphor it's another way of seeing the hand of god at work because Evolution has a, a, uh, a, a, a has provided a way by which purposes can be served. And one of the fascinating things about evolution is that one of the things that evolves in the course of evolution is not just complexity. We can see that geologically as the fossils get more and more representative of more and more interesting and complex organisms. Not just complexity, yeah. but uh, purpose itself evolves. Uh, so there's a, there's a dynamic in evolution, which, uh, you have to be able to look at that, uh, with religious eyes to see that dynamic as something which is, uh, as I said before, uh, indicative of the hand and the handiwork of God. That's kind of very interesting to me. Uh, I mentioned one one figure that I know some of your listeners uh, will be interested in. That's Teilhard de Chardin, who was a paleontologist uh, and in the early part of the last century, uh, Catholic priest. Uh, very, uh, it was considered a little heretical by the by the church because he was an independent thinker, but he thought. There was, as he put it, a, 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 in, the, in the labyrinth of evolution, if you try and classify all the different species, he thought there was uh, Ariadne's thread. You know, Ariadne's thread was the thread that she left behind to guide Theseus through the labyrinth and find his way to rescue her. Uh, what, is the, what is the thread that Teilhard de Chardin is so interested in? It's the rise of intelligence. It's the rise of intelligence. You don't have intelligence in rocks. You don't have, you know, he, he makes an interesting point about insects. 
insects because they have an exoskeleton that can only get so big. And we've, we've seen some big ones. Back in the Bishop Museum in Honolulu, I used to see the really big beetles, but they can only get so big because their exoskeleton would make them too heavy to get about if they, uh, if they got much bigger than that. Because of the limits on size, they have a limit on cranial capacity. And because of that, all their elaborate behaviors turn out to be social behaviors. That is to say, the bees, the termites, they, they elaborate their, their culture genetically rather than by learning and tradition as, as uh, mammals do and as we humans do especially. Yeah. So, yeah. so the insects represent uh, uh, this, this far you can go in the development of intelligence and then you can't go any further. Whereas in the human case, uh, evolution has allowed us, I can't say to develop our intelligence because we, we still make war and are intolerant and, and all of those terrible things, but it has allowed us uh, to get to the stage we've gotten to and hope to be able to go further. Yeah. One thing that we don't find in science, qua science, is hope. I remember Edward Wilson, the great entomologist uh, from Harvard, uh, talking about how beautiful uh, the sunset over the water is and, and how, uh, how he hopes that all the different insect species will be preserved, partly because uh, he studies them and partly because he loves their diversity and their variety. But that love of the diversity and variety of insects, that doesn't come from science. It might motivate science. That's a religious and moral dimension, which scientists, because of fashion, uh, to a great extent, preclude from themselves. They stop themselves from saying uh, something about beauty and something about hope and something about worrying about our fellow creatures and our fellow human beings. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, weakness mm -hmm. I see on the on the side is that is that it is really a marketing job, <laughs> right? And so religions uh, could take, like you say, Big Bang cosmology, uh, or just call it Big Bangs, uh, Big Bang and Darwinism, yes, and, and market that. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean uh, there is substance in the structure, right? So if you give religion something else, they would utilize that in that marketing program. Oh, I, th I, think, that's, I think that's a little unfair. Uh, <laughs> you know, this notion of marketing, uh, we market all kinds of inventions and uh, what are markets after all? There are mechanisms for serving uh, human desires. Yeah. Those desires can be wholesome or unwholesome. They can be uh, desires for necessities or desires for luxuries. They can be desires for uh, helping others or desires for suppressing others. Yeah. Uh, marketing, marketing uh, uh, like logic, uh, is, uh, is, is very uh, topic neutral. Uh, science appears to do really well in the contemporary sense in incremental extensions and we seem to be losing the ability to make really big changes. And, and I'm sort of agreeing with you, and I'm asking you this question, which is, is that because scientists are less willing uh, to, to move away from, you know, sort of a position of comfort 
and look at things that might consider it to be, you know, sort of peripheral? Well, uh, I, I can take a stab at that, uh, but, but it's a question about the psychology and sociology of the sciences. Yeah. And I think uh, like any human question, uh, you'll find a variety of answers depending on which scientists you're talking about. Yeah. I would start out in answering that question by saying that uh, 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 what's, what's new and different is not necessarily better. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's, uh, uh, I, I don't think, uh, uh, to, mention, to mention Newton again, I don't think that Newton's work will ever be surpassed. It, it, it's fantastic work. Uh, but uh, it, 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 it gets absorbed in, uh, in uh, Einsteinian uh, physics, just as they're trying to absorb Einstein's views within quantum. And, and uh, if string theory proves out, uh, they'll, they'll probably enlarge it rather than uh, abandon uh, what quantum theory has been trying to teach us. Yeah. Uh, I, think, I think that... Uh, uh, we mentioned Kuhn before. Thomas Kuhn in his yeah. Structure of Scientific Revolutions, which is the, the book that gave us uh, the expression uh, paradigm shift, uh, was, was saying that there's uh, routine science and then there's revolutionary science. And as a historian of science, he was trying to explain what makes the difference. And part of what makes the difference is that people have a different way of looking at things. You can see a little of that in genetics, for example. Uh, the, the real revolution in genetics uh, in the 20th century came from uh, cybernetics, not, not because cybernetics uh, taught us anything about genetics per se, but, but it gave us a language to talk about uh, the transformation of information and thinking of, uh, thinking of genes as bearers of information was was an extremely uh, fruitful way of thinking about what uh, what DNA is doing. We're not just talking about the shape of the molecule. We're talking about the function of the molecule, what good it does for the organism and for the lineage of the organism. Uh, but there's a tendency, I think, because we uh, get excited about what's new, there's a tendency to um, disparage uh, what uh, what Kuhn was calling the uh, the, the sort of workaday uh, scientist, but you know, Gil, it's the workaday scientist who is uh, uh, finding a way of um, combating cancer or developing a, ver a vaccine. Sometimes we have a little breakthrough. The the new mRNA vaccines that they're using now, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, are based on a new concept, a new, a new approach to doing vaccines that we didn't have before. Uh, is that a product of routine science? Not quite. There was some very creative work going on there. I think that uh, I think that there's a lot of different realms in which creativity can can work. Uh, the shoemaker, when he repairs your shoes, can do so in a very creative way when he comes across uh, a problem that he hasn't seen before. And we shouldn't we shouldn't disparage that that day to day work a day. You know, watch watch the gardener when the gardener does his gardening or her gardening, and you'll see. You'll see aesthetic appreciation. You'll see values. You'll see uh, problems being solved in a creative way. Uh, 
sometimes there's a breakthrough. Sometimes it's not about a breakthrough, but it's still it's still not uh, anything uh, mean or or uh, pedestrian. Yeah, I, I'm not I'm not saying that, Len. I, I'm trying to make a different uh, pu- uh, point, which is, you know, in the paper you talk about sort of complementarity between science and religion. And, yes. Uh, you know, in some sense, in contemporary views, they seem to have sort of moved away from each other, right? Um, and and there are, there are a variety of reasons for it. So I'm, you know, sort of posing the question that, was that complementarity important uh, in, in making big framework type shifts in, in, in human knowledge? I don't know the answer to it. Um, uh, you know, we don't have a lot of data points around it, but we can speculate. Um, but, but uh, you know... Um, sometimes yeah. sometimes uh, we get creativity from seeing one thing in terms of another. Yeah. And we, we bring uh, from a different realm of experience. It's a lot like what poets do when they create a metaphorical expression and they, uh, and they, and they say, oh, uh, this is like that. And, and uh, they show you an aspect of things that you hadn't observed before. And that's true, that's true of science. Uh, if you think about Pasteur, you think about Kekule, uh, you think about Helmholtz, uh, uh, great scientists, uh, what, they, what they often were doing was bringing knowledge and experience from one realm into another and putting it to work. Uh, some of the scientists, I mentioned Einstein before, some of them are very mathematical and they can think in very abstract terms and then bring those abstractions down to very concrete applications so as to design or devise or propose experiments that would confirm uh, their theoretical expectations. Right. Uh, uh, it, it, it's, it's a synthetic form of thinking. We tend to think of science in terms of analysis, but analysis is only fruitful when it goes hand in hand with synthesis. And bringing bringing one area of experience to bear on another is is one domain is one way in which uh, a synthesis can be very effective and very creative. Right, right. And so, in conclusion, Len, if you want to leave one thought <laughs> for everybody, uh, what would that be in the context of science and religion? Um, my one the- my one thought my one thought is this. Keep an open mind. Yeah. Keep an open mind because because uh, if you're religious, be open to the possibility that there's a deeper intellectual and spiritual and moral truth in science. And if you're scientific, don't be scientific and don't <laughs> think you've got it all uh, right. just because uh, uh, you're using a different language and a different pair of eyes, if you will, yeah. from your friends and your relatives who look at the world in a more spiritual way. Right, right. Yeah, if we can bring those together in a complementary way. That's that right. Out of that could be much more than, than each. Yes, and it's also more loving. Right, right. Excellent, yeah. This has been great, Len. Thanks so much for spending time with me. My great pleasure. I enjoyed it. Uh, I- 
This is a scientific sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info@scientificsense.com.